You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. To the angel of the church in Pergam, write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who would hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious... I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give to that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Awesome. Thanks, Stephanie. Let's pray together. So, Jesus, we just acknowledge in each of your letters uh, to the churches in Revelation that that line, whoever has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so on the day of where we celebrate Pentecost with millions of other Christians around the world, we just say thank you, Jesus for giving us your Holy Spirit. I thank you for giving us ears to hear your voice, to receive the words you have for us. I do pray that you will forgive us for not listening, for not internalizing your words, and for the times maybe we even do hear, but we do not obey them. And we ask today that, Holy Spirit, that you would, in fact, grant us faith, that you would grant us repentance, that you would fall on us afresh, that you would root us in the Father's love, that you would unite our hearts with the heart of Jesus, that you would empower us for his kingdom mission and give us a boldness to live as his witnesses. And now as we, uh, as we dive into this text and today's teaching, I pray that you would just open our ears, open our hearts, open our minds to receive everything that you have for us today and that you would use it to transform not just our lives, but our church, our city, and beyond for our good and for the glory of your name. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Randy Sheets uh, was a former army ranger turned pastor, um, and he was a man that I greatly admired. He was passionate, was married to a beautiful wife, had four amazing kids that you can see in the picture, and he was personally discipled by one of my heroes of the faith. And tragically, just four weeks before Randy actually flew out to Paragould to spend time with us, he walked into his church office and he took his own life. Stay alert and stay alive. That's something that Randy actually used to say to me, and it was something that he shared with his battalion that he led in the war in Afghanistan. And it was a phrase that he would say regularly because as he told me, he says, you know, soldiers are actually most vulnerable when they're most comfortable. He said apathy often would lead to tragedy. And so he would say to his soldiers, look, I know it doesn't feel like we're in wartime right now. We're not being attacked. You don't see an enemy, but stay alert and stay alive. This is really good advice when it comes to a physical war. 
but it's even better advice when it comes to the spiritual war, a war that all of us are in, this unseen war that because it's invisible can lull us to sleep, thinking all is well when in fact this battle is actually raging within us, a battle that if left unchecked and unabated, like Randy, can lead us down a path of death and destruction. Maybe for some of you, you have asked questions like this. Why can't I shake this habit? Why do I keep losing my temper? Why do I have trouble connecting with God and others? Maybe you've wondered, why do I keep making these same bad decisions? Why do I struggle with the same sins? Or, or why am I consumed with worry and fear and negativity? And a big part of that is because your mind is a war zone. It is a battleground, the Bible tells us, between these competing ideas, some that lead to life, but others that can lead to death. And because Jesus knows that we are in the middle of this war, because he knows we have a real enemy who is constantly trying to take us down by getting into our heads, he writes this letter to the church of Pergamum, a a letter that is for them, but also for us. And what we find in this letter, what we find in this church is that these are people who were winning a battle on the outside, but they were beginning to lose a battle on the inside. And an attempt to help this church and to help us today learn how to stay alert and stay alive, here's how he starts the letter, verse 12. He says, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. Now I just want to stop right there and remind you that Jesus has just given himself that title. Um, Just as Jesus did uh, last week, he's writing to a people and he's trying to speak a unique word to a unique church, give a specific title for himself uh, that that actually gives a a answer or, or solves a problem that they are specifically dealing with. And here he says, I am the one, verse 12, who has the sharp double edged sword. And verse 16, notice the sword, where is it? It's not in his hand, but it's actually coming out of his mouth. Can we all agree today? That is a pretty intense image that Jesus wants you to think of whenever he comes to mind. At least that's the image that he gives us right here. And it's important that the sword is actually in his mouth, not in his hand. Because what Jesus is trying to say here to this church and to you and I today is that I am coming to do battle against the enemy. I am coming to try to take out this enemy before he takes you out. And the way that I'm primarily going to do this is not through a weapon, but through my words. That's why it's coming out of his mouth. What Jesus is trying to communicate here is that I am coming and from out of my mouth will come true that will actually cut through the lies that you have been believing so that you can be set free to experience the life that you long to experience. He says, these are the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword. Verse 13, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. It's not exactly the words you probably want Jesus to say to you, especially if like you just listed your house and you're trying to communicate to people that you live in a great location or whatever else. It's like, nope. Like, you live, like, it's such a creepy word, like, I know where you live, and it's where Satan has his throne. Yet, look at this, despite the fact Jesus says that you are living next door to the prince of darkness, you remain true to my name. You continue to boldly stand for me and my kingdom. He says, you did not renounce faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas. We know Antipas, by the way, was a well-known pastor and disciple of Jesus who was actually roasted in an iron bull because of his faith. He says, you did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city, again, where Satan lives. So despite the fact that you've seen this incredible, 
incredible trauma, despite the fact that you have been exposed to physical persecution, despite the fact that, that, that you are experiencing pain and, and, and just this heartbreaking tragedy, he says, you remain faithful to me. And I love this, he says, about you. That's been a sobering word for me this week, by the way, because as an American or as Americans, I think most of us, if we can be honest, we cannot fathom a God who would actually ask us to sacrifice our comforts and safety for his agenda. A God that would ever ask us to put ourselves or anyone else in harm's way for his mission. And yet in this text, Jesus actually commends his church for doing that exact thing. He says, you know what I love about you, church, is you choose risk over retreat. He says, Satan has come to your town. And despite the fact that literally people are dying because of their faith, or because of their faith, despite the fact that, you're, that, he is, that Satan is just hitting you over and over and over, he says, what I love about this church is you guys are like a nail. The harder you get hit, the deeper you go into the gospel. He says, this is a great thing that you have going for you. You continue to persevere even in the midst of physical persecution. Nevertheless, Verse 14, he says, I have a few things against you, and here they are. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And so here's what Jesus just said. Here's some good news, church. He says, you are winning the battle on the outside. But here's the bad news. You're starting to lose the battle on the inside. The good news, he says, is Satan could not destroy you through using hard power. But the bad news is he's starting to destroy you from the inside with soft power. Because he could not take you out with weapons, he says, Satan is now going to use words. In other words, he's going to use deceitful ideas that he can pass down and get into your head through the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. And you're like, well, what in the world is the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans? Well, in essence, it's this, that you can follow Jesus and still pretty much do whatever you want to do. Does that sound at all familiar in our culture today? That you can basically follow Jesus and live like the rest of the world. Because you are no longer under the law, but you are under grace, you can do whatever you want, whenever you want, as long as you don't hurt anyone else. This is essentially what they are teaching, especially or specifically when it comes to the ideas of food and sex. Right in verse 14, we see the church in Pergamon, they had begun to believe they could eat whatever they want, even if they ate food that was sacrificed to idols. And they began to believe the lie, we can have sex with whoever we want, even if it meant having sex with someone who is outside the covenant of marriage. And if you're like, why is that such a big deal? Well, let's just start with eating food sacrificed to idols. Why is this a big deal? Because eating forms family. And specifically, what the church in Pergamum doing is they're forming a family around a idol. And so in this moment, whenever they're eating food sacrificed to idols, this is not just a physical act. It is a spiritual act that was meant to literally center their lives around one of the cultural idols of that particular day. And if this is confusing to you, you're like, what do you mean? Like, how is food a physical act or a spiritual act, not just a physical act? Well, think about this. Think about communion. Of all the ways that Jesus said, I want you to remember my presence with you, he gives us bread and he gives us juice. 
And he says, I want you to come around this table. And when you come around this table and you remember the bread, which represents my body, and the juice, which represents my blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins, I want you to make sure as a reminder that you are forming this faith family around who I am and what I have done for you. So the Lord's Supper, right? It's not just a physical act. It is a spiritual act. Yes, it does something to our stomach, but more than that, it is meant to do something to our heart, to our entire lives. And that is what is happening right here in Pergamum, except rather than them forming their lives around Jesus, right, through food and through their budgets and through their schedules, they are forming their families around an idol that will never, ever satisfy them or fulfill them in the way that only Christ can. And as I thought about that this past week, I could not help but think about how this same thing happens in our culture today. You see, when you think about an idol, don't think of like this little statue that you bow down to. Don't think of like Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. But rather, when you think about an idol, think about anything that you look to as your ultimate source of joy and happiness. Tim Keller says, when you think about an idol, think about what your money and your time most effortlessly flow towards. Where is it easiest for you to spend money? Where does your time most go towards when you're just kind of on autopilot? Keller says, that's what you worship. For some of us, it's our career. For others, it's materialism or pleasure. For some of us, it's success, sex, the approval of others. For many in our culture, it's our kids. Rather than viewing our children as a gift from God, we view our kids as God. And we, in many ways, wrap up our identity and our self-worth and our joy all in their success. I don't know what it may be for you, but an idol is anytime you take a good thing and you try to make it an ultimate thing. And as a result, what it does over time is it does not free you, but it enslaves you. It will take away your joy and your peace and all that is good. And see, this is what is happening right here in Pergamum, not just with food, but also with sex. Sex like food is a good thing. You realize that? Like God made sex. It's a good thing. Like God is pro-sex. But the problem is, is we often pervert God's view of sex. Just like the Pergamons, just like they were doing with food, they were, they were looking at sex as, as not a spiritual act, but a physical act. They were thinking that sex was primarily just biological, that it was just, you know, nothing more than play for grownups. So therefore, like many in our culture, they were saying, what's the big deal if I want to, as an adult, have sex with whoever I want, kind of whenever I want, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else? And you see, the problem with that is God actually has a much higher view of sex than that. God does not have a low view of sex. God has a very high view of sex. He says in the scriptures that when you have sex, you become one flesh with that person. What that means is literally when you have sex with someone, you are joined with them in a way, listen to me, that is intimate and powerful and irreversible. This is why whenever you have sex with someone and you leave that person, you leave a part of yourself behind. And so the more people you have sex with, the more that you can begin to hollow yourself out until there is little to nothing to give away. And this is why God designed sex to stay within the context of marriage between one man and one woman for one life. Why did he design it that way? Because marriage is the only container that is strong enough to hold the power of sex. Marriage is the only container that can hold sex in such a way that it, rather than doing damage to your soul, actually brings blessing and life to your soul. See, sex, we said this before, is a lot like fire. Fire, right, when it's in the right boundary, it can warm a home up. But if it moves outside of that boundary, it can burn a home down. And we can all point to examples where we have seen this happen in marriages around us. Because of a porn addiction or an affair, a marriage that once seemed so strong began to crumble. And as a result, it left their children to deal with the collateral damage of their own sexual immorality. 
And there's a whole lot more that I could say about that, but here's just the point I want to make. Guys, the culture says sex is just play for grown-ups. And that's because the culture has a very low view of sex. Our culture says it's just physical, it's just biological, but sex is way, 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 way more than that. God says that when you have sex, you are fused together with that person as one in a way that was never meant to be separated. And this is why there is no such thing as casual sex. Lewis Smead says it like this, there is no such thing as casual sex, no matter how casual people are about it. The Christian assaults reality in his night out at the brothel. Nobody can go to bed with someone and leave their soul parked outside. He goes on to say this, therefore, the demand for self-restraint, the demand to, hey, not have sex outside of marriage, it is not a killjoy rule plastered on the abundant life of anti-sexual saints. It is respect for reality. And see, that's what Jesus is after. Remember, Jesus, he gives the image of himself as a sword coming out of his mouth. Why? Because Jesus wants you to know, I am the truth teller. And what is truth? That's a good question. That's what is truth? Well, truth is reality. Lies is unreality and truth is just reality. And that is what Jesus is after. He wants you to live in reality because that is how things work best. And that's really the whole point of the book of Revelation. Remember, Revelation, right, it means unveiling. God is pulling back a curtain and he's saying like, this is the way life really is. Like there is more, because we have to get this, there is more going on than what we can taste or feel or see or smell. And what Jesus wants to do through the book of Revelation, through these letters, is awaken us to the reality of what is actually going on, of how life works best. And because Satan knows this is true, he's so sneaky. What he will constantly try to do is get into your head and distort reality. Put another way, he will try to sell you on these distorted ideas for the purpose of leading you down a path of death and destruction. Jesus says it like this in John eight forty four. He says that he, talking about Satan, was a murderer from the beginning. Some of you want to believe in God, If you want to believe in God, you have to believe in the devil. Like the devil is real. And according to Jesus himself, his goal from day one has been to wipe you out. Or as Jesus goes on to say in John 10, 10, he has come to kill, steal, and destroy. Every time I think of that verse, I think of the scene from the dark night where Alfred is talking to Bruce Wayne about the Joker. I remember the dark night. And here's what he says about the Joker, because Bruce Wayne's trying to wrap his mind around how someone can be so evil. And here's what Alfred says, is some men aren't looking for anything logical. They can't be bought, they can't be reasoned with, and they can't be negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn. According to Jesus, that's what the devil is like. He can't be bought. He don't care about you. You can't reason with him. You can't negotiate with him. He just wants to watch the the world burn. He is hell-bent on destruction. He is a creature who is at war with God and with you, and he is seeking to burn to the ground all that is good and beautiful and true. In 1 Peter 5, 8, Peter says this, be alert and sober-minded. You hear that language, stay alert, stay alive? Be sober-minded. Wake up to reality. Why? For your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. By the way, that word devour there is the same word that is used when it's talking about the well that swallows Jonah. He's saying that's what the devil wants to do. He wants to swallow you whole. That said, if Satan's primary goal is murder, and it is according to Jesus, his primary strategy for bringing about murder is through lies. This is what we see with Adam and Eve in the garden. He don't come in the garden with a machete. Right? 
He uses his words. Did God really say? This is what he's doing with Pergamum through this corrupt teaching. And I'm telling you, it's what his strategy is against you every single day. He is trying to destroy your life. He's trying to destroy this church. He's trying to destroy your marriage. And the way that he wants to do it is not primarily through demonization. It's not through disaster. It's not through disease, but it's through deception. It is through selling you on deceitful ideas about God, yourself, and the world around you. This is his primary strategy against you. This is how he is seeking to kill, steal, and destroy. It is through lies. And listen, guys, this is always so subtle. It's not obvious at all that it's happening. That's why he's so good at what he does. Like the way this happens is, is, is Satan, he doesn't try to make this obvious, but he just, he gets into your ear and he says, hey, how are you doing? Because that's all we really want is just someone to, how are you doing? And then he just begins this conversation. And hey, do you still think that you could be happy if you stayed married to this person? Because I don't think so. Like, like, are you sure you're not settling? You sure you don't deserve better? Someone who respects you more, can romance you more? What about that person who's been showing you some attention? Or hey, like, have you got on social media lately? You notice how much better all of your friends are doing than you? How much further along they are than you? How happy they are? How happy their kids are? Have you noticed their new house? Have you noticed that nice truck? Have you noticed how they actually go on much better vacations? I bet their kids are so happy to have them as a parent. You're falling behind. You better figure it out. You better start working more hours. Stop giving to the church. Get another credit card. Get yourself in more debt. Do whatever it takes, but whatever you do, do not fall behind. Seek first the kingdom of God? No. Pursue the American dream. Jesus, just give him the leftovers. He's okay with that. It's called grace. You see how he does it? I'll tell you what he did for me just even this past week. You know, in ministry, any ministry, down throughout church history, there are seasons of gain, there are seasons of loss. And, and, and this has been true even in our church. There are seasons of gain, seasons of loss. And, and for me, this past season, though there's been awesome things to celebrate, celebrate, which by the way, I don't know if we mentioned this earlier, but we had three baptisms this morning in the first service, three women who came up and were baptized, and it was unbelievable, their testimonies, incredible. So we're still seeing signs of life in our church, but there's also, in some ways, it's been a season of death. And I was, you know, kind of dwelling on some of this stuff, some of the loss just this past week, and I really felt like the enemy began to get into my own ear. And you know it's the enemy, by the way, because it's a voice of condemnation. Like, the voice of Jesus is gentle and lowly. It sounds like love, and it leads to life. But I just begin to, to just have this voice going on in my head that just says, like, like you realize... If you were a good pastor, everything would always be up and to the right. Like you realize like, like if God was really with you, like everything would always be gain and there'd be no loss. Like you're just not a good enough pastor. You're not a good enough preacher. You're not a good enough leader. I hate to tell you this, but your best days are behind you. And so you might as well go get an easier job or you can make a lot better money. See, this is how he works. And you've got to be able to detect his voice. Because the longer he's talking to you, do you know what he's doing? The longer he's talking to you and the longer you listen, the more he's making you selfish and narcissistic and stingy and anxious and depressed. And he's slowly but surely doing what? Killing, stealing, 
and destroying what he is a master at. This is what we see him do with Adam and Eve. It's what we see him doing with Pergamum. He is selling them in this text on these subtle little lies, guys, and that's always the way they are. It's almost like half-truths. He sells you on these subtle little lies that cause you to make these seemingly insignificant compromises that over time have a devastating effect, not not just on your life, but on the lives of others. And therefore, because that is true, we have to realize today that our fight against Satan is ultimately a fight to believe truth over lies. David Tackle says it like this. I've quoted this before, but it was too good not to quote again. He says that he, talking about Satan, cannot violate our will or make us sin. Hear that today. Satan cannot make you sin. You ever heard, the devil made me do it. That's, that's not true. The devil cannot, he has no power to make you sin. But here's what he can do. He can offer us distorted perceptions as if they were foundations for life or twist the truth until we no longer know which end is up. I'd say that is like so true in our culture right now. We are so confused. We greatly trivialize the work of the enemy when we say that his primary activity is to tempt us to do bad things. That is only a small part of his strategy. If he can keep us from hearing the truth or keep us from internalizing the truth, and I would say that's probably more us who are here on a Sunday morning. Like you showed up today to hear the truth. Satan's lost that battle. Now he just tries to keep you from internalizing the truth. If he can keep us from hearing the truth or keep us from internalizing the truth once we hear it, if he can fill our heart with all sorts of distortions about spiritual realities, then we will go off and self-destruct on our own without any need for constant harassment or temptation. This is the stuff of which the kingdom of darkness is built. Once we grasp this reality, we have within our reach a phenomenal weapon because light has all the power. Wherever light enters, darkness is obliterated. There is no contest, no struggle. Light wins hands down. The kingdom of darkness is built on a sham, and one thing it cannot tolerate is exposure to the truth. Isn't that good news? Bad news today is that some of you have been building your life on a sham, on lies that you have been fed. But the good news is you can know this, that Jesus has not left you. And he stands with you right in the middle of the battle. And he doesn't just bring truth. Jesus says in one part, John, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that's what Jesus ultimately has on offer for you today. It is life. In John 10, 10, he says, the thief has come to kill, steal, destroy, but I've come so that you may have life and have it abundantly. More than Jesus wants you to be a good little girl or a good little boy, he wants you to experience abundant life. That's his agenda for you. And he says, ultimately, it's found in me. The question is today is like, okay, well, then what do I do? How do I experience the abundant life? How do I experience this freedom? How do I experience this fulfillment that I have been longing for? And Jesus tells us in verse 16. Here it is. You ready for the answer? You look, look in your own Bible. What does he say? Repent. That is a dirty word in America just because we're ignorant to what the word repent means. I don't, I don't know any other way to say it. The word repent literally just means to change your thinking. That's all it means. And so if you want to experience victory in the battle, here's what Jesus is saying. You have to replace the lies you've been believing with the truth. You have to stop walking in a fantasy world, an unreality, and you have to open your eyes to the ultimate reality, which is Jesus and his vision of the good life. And if you do this, look at the promise. This is where he ends, verse 17. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some hidden manna, 
I will also give the person a white stone and a new name on it not, uh, that is known only to the one who receives it. This is a promise, listen guys, that is about fulfillment and about friendship. What Jesus says first is, if you will trust in me, just as I fed Israel manna on their way to the promised land, I will make sure that you are fed and fulfilled on your way to the city of God. That's what he's saying. Jesus says in John, I am the bread of life. Like you want nourishment, not just like physical nourishment, but spiritual nourishment. Like you feel empty today. Anybody feel empty emotionally? Feel empty spiritually? Jesus says, look to me, feast on me. I am the bread of life. I am the one who alone can do for you what this idol can never do for you, what your kids can never do for you, what your spouse can never do for you, what your job can never do to you. Like look to me and find in me the fulfillment that you have been longing for. So this is about fulfillment, but it's also about friendship. He says, to the one who is victorious, I will give a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows, but he who receives it. You, you feel the intimacy there? It's like if I give my wife a note, it's like only she knows what's in this note. It's a very intimate relationship. And there's a lot of speculation about what does Jesus mean about these stones. And, and, and I tend to think, this is where I side, is, is in this culture, uh, in the context of where this is written, there was this thing that would happen between two friends. Like if they were going to leave one another uh, for a time to remind each other, like, hey, we're still together. Like this little physical separation doesn't actually change anything. They would give each other a stone. They'd break it in half, give it to them, and it'd have the name on it. It was a way of reminding them, like, hey, you know what? Our friendship, our relationship is just as sturdy as the stone that we hold in our hands. And so Jesus says, like, I'm going to give you a stone, and you're going to have this new name written, which means you're going to have this new identity that's going to set the tone for your entire eternity. And it's a name that is meant to remind you of who you actually are in me. See, right now, so many of us are confused on who we are, but when we receive this stone, we're going to be reminded, look, I am not what others say about me. I am not even what I think about myself. I'm not what somebody else did to me. I'm not defective. That's not who I am. My primary identity is not someone who is damaged or flawed or dirty or ugly or impure or disgusting or unlovable or weak or pitiful. And I'm certainly not unlovable or unwanted. But rather, when we look at this stone, it is a reminder that I am who Christ says that I am. I am forgiven. I am redeemed. I am healed. I am brand new. I am chosen. I am changed. I am blessed. I am complete. I am a beloved son or daughter of God. This is what Jesus offers to the one who repents, to the one who is victorious, to the one who believes these truths over these lies. He promises fulfillment and friendship that is as rugged and durable as his resurrection. And so to end, I just want to say this. If we're going to be a healthy church, we have to be a church that is rooted in the truth of who God is. And in order for us to be rooted in this truth, in order for us to be people who are victorious, in order for us to be the ones who receive freedom and fulfillment, there are four things that I'll share with you in less than four minutes that we need to do today on a practical level in order to actually act on this word today. And the first thing I want to encourage you to do is this. If you want to truly experience the life that God has for you, first thing you have to do is to humbly acknowledge that you might not have the corner on truth. In other words, be open to the fact that there are some lies that you actually may still be believing today. Secondly, identify the lies you've been believing. Sometimes you may need a good Christian therapist to do this. You may need to do it in your DNA. You may need to do it with a pastor. Someone come to me after the first service and say, can I, can, can I process my story with you and you help me with this? 
but identify lies you've been believing, whether it be about God, yourself, or someone else. Third, and this is very important, open yourself up to the sharp two-edged sword that comes from Jesus' mouth. In other words, open yourself up to the Bible. Like, don't just get into God's word, get God's word into you. And the way, the only way you can do this, there's no shortcut. Like you've got to carve out space to spend time in the word. Like this is the primary way we hear from God. It's how we encounter his presence. Like get his truth inside of your body and begin to for replace the lies with the truth. Replace the distorted ideas with the word of God. Step into reality, walk in the truth. And remember that as you do this, the truth, Jesus Christ, will stand in your midst and he will fight for you and he will in his own power help you take your thoughts captive and as a result you will be able to in him experience truly the freedom and the fulfillment that you have been longing for i'm going to invite those preparing communion if they will to go ahead and come forward and the band if you will to come up as well And just a reminder for those of you who might be new we take communion every week because jesus actually commanded us to do this And just as we talked about just now in this teaching, uh, this is not just a physical act. It is a spiritual act. It does impact our stomach, but also our hearts, also our lives. This is a way that we believe Jesus is, is present in a special way. He gives us the bread, which represents his perfect life that he lived on our behalf. He gives us the juice, which represents his blood that was shed for us for the forgiveness of sins. And so as we come and take this, we remember that as a church, that we are a family that is being formed around Jesus, that he is where our hope is and he's all that we have. And let me just say this, guys. Listen very carefully. This is just a little pastoral warning from me to you. If you take this flippantly, it's not going to help you. And so, like, this is an area we need to grow in as a church. Like, we move into this time, and I see everyone shuffling around. It's like, okay, we're going to do the communion, then we're going to leave. Like, don't, don't let this be lost on you. This is a very sacred time. And so, take a moment. We talked about this, remember, in January, whenever I taught on communion. Like, just take a moment, ask Holy Spirit, is there anything you want to say to me in this time? Is there any sins I need to confess? Is there anything that, that I need to be, God, are there any lies that I've been believing? Like open yourself up and then as you come forward, remember how sacred this meal is. Like remember that Jesus is there at this table, that he wants to meet with you there in a real personal and tangible way. And if you're a Christian, like you're welcome to this. Even if you're not a member of our church, you're welcome to communion. Um, if you're not a Christian, let me just say this to you today. I'm so glad you're here. In fact, in some ways, I'm more happy you're here than anybody else. Like the fact that God brought you here and you had a chance to come today and it took a lot of courage for you to do that. And so thank you for being here. We don't have a lot of closed doors to you here, but this is just something I would say. This is a closed door to you. And it's not because we don't love you, but it's because this is empty. There's, this is, there's nothing in this for you. Like it's just, it's, it's bread and juice. And so like rather than receiving this today, like receive Jesus you realize, guys, like you are believing something is true. You realize that? Like there's something or someone you're putting your hope in. And I would just ask you today, like, who told you to put your hope there? Like, why are you anchoring so much hope and, and joy in this thing or this person outside of Jesus? Like, trust him today. Give your life to him today, maybe for the very first time. And if you want to know what that looks like, Adam would love to connect with you. I'd love to connect with you. Robert's out here. Chris is over here. Talk to one of our members. We'd all love to help any way that we can. With that, let's stand together. I'll pray for us. You can take communion either here at these stations or the disposable cup in the back. We'll sing one final song and be dismissed. Father, I thank you so much for these who are here today in person. I know that 
You love them dearly. You know their stories. I pray if the enemy is inside of their head even right now, maybe it's condemnation for something they've done in the past. How could you? You'll never be forgiven or you'll never be loved or you'll never be the same or your life will just be on plan B from here on out. The best days are behind you. Whatever the lies are, pursue the American dream. Self-worth is found only in your parenting or only in your success. Whatever those lies are, Jesus, would you please right now through your Holy Spirit awaken us to reality. Help us to hear your voice, your loving voice, your tender voice above all the other noise. And I pray that our lives would be deeply rooted in you, the way, the truth, and the life. And it's in your name we pray, amen.